There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com. On the subject of the Poet X, this was this is what in my top two. Is it in anybody else's top two? <laughs> there are so many in my top. It's in my top five, <laughs> but not in my top I think two. it's probably in my top three. It is wonderful. So the re- the reason I liked it as well was because there's a lot of Spanish in there that isn't explained. Yeah. She's very good at capturing the language of the Harlem neighborhood. Um, there's a section where she's painting a really beautiful picture sitting on her stoop. She's... Um, she talks about the characters that are playing dominoes and she, she paints a very vivid picture of the neighbourhood. And that was something that was really important for the author, um, Elizabeth Acevedo. Here she is talking about setting and why imp- how important that is for her in this novel. I think that you really get to know a character and can believe a character when you understand the structures and the context that made them. And for Xiomara Harlem, how loud she has to be, how quiet she has to be, how she has to fight with her fist, how she has to act differently depending on the spaces she occupies is entirely because of the place that she was born and raised in. And I, I wanted that sense of community to come through the character. And I think it absolutely does. And Xiomara Batista is this is a wonderful character. I, I didn't expect to to empathize with her as much as I did, but she completely draws you in. And and she you you walk with her. She goes through all of these things, and she struggles with her faith. She struggles with first love. So I think it's a novel that I think everyone can enjoy, and in surprising ways. Yes, I found the um, sibling relationship incredibly touching mm. about how she mm. copes with that. There she's a, a twin. She's a twin. And um, there's a beautiful, I'm just trying to find, yeah, here we go. Um, My brother was born a soft whistle, quiet, barely stirring the air, a gentle sound. But I was born all the hurricane he needed to lift and drop those who hurt him to the ground. And that perfectly yeah, sums lovely. up. But also she feels the pressure of that also. She doesn't always want to have to fight. She wants him to kind of fight his own battles as well and you see the interaction between them. Um, the author describes Yomara Batista as ferocious yet tender, thoughtful yet tough, which I think is a perfect description of her. Yes, I, I saw that interview as well and she's talking about they're the kind of girls she wants to reach in the same way that Jason Reynolds wants to partic- reach that particular kind of boy who doesn't read. Yeah, Here, here she is actually talking about that. I had students who were struggling readers. And when I asked one student in particular what kinds of books I could get for her that she might be interested in, she wasn't really into any of the big blockbuster um, film adaptation type books. She wasn't into the stories that were far flung. The one thing she really wanted and the one thing she asked for was, where are the books about us? And it was that question that really started my thinking through who are the characters that I wanted to see depicted when I was a teenager, who I felt like this young person in this classroom was asking me to find. Where are the stories about bold girls of color who are ferocious and also tender, who are thoughtful and also tough? And how could I get that kind of character on the page? So there is Elizabeth Acevedo talking about why she decided to write The Poet X in the first place. We are going to have to move on, but before we do, do you think that this one will win? I would love it. I would be happy yeah. if it did, mm. but it wouldn't be, if I was kind of making a bet on it, it wouldn't be that one. 
Okay, but I, th- I think it's marvellous and I think it'd be a worthy winner if indeed it did. I think it would be a worthy winner. I also think it might win, but moving on. <laughs> <laughs> we shall see on Tuesday. So Things a Bright Girl Can Do by Sally Nichols is the next book that we are going to talk about. It is completely different. It's not written in verse. It's a <laughs> historical novel, but it does talk about gender in another interesting way, which I think the Poet X does as well. Before we talk about that, I'd like to introduce our guest, Rehan Khan, to the studio. No stranger to talking of books. He's an author of The Last of the Tazbari series and also a Tudor Turk more recently. So Things a Bright Girl Can Do by Sally Nichols. Um, would anybody like to introduce this book to our listeners? No, nobody <laughs> wants to take responsibility. We're all, we're all politely saying, no, no, you can do it. It's about the suffragettes. <laughs> yeah, I, I can if nobody wants to. Um, basically, it's 1914. And so there's a lot of kind of things happening. The world is on edge. And you've got three characters who are all kind of, to some degree, part of the suffragette movement. And they are at different levels in society. And what Sally Nichols does is she tries to follow each of those characters to give a kind of multi-layered view, not only of the suffragette movement, of what it's like to be a woman in those times, and a really interesting look at the war from the perspective of those who are left behind, which is quite interesting. And um, I I thought it was incredibly interesting. And it's another one that I'm going to get my daughter to read because it is a very interesting... I keep saying interesting, but it is interesting about the kind you of... You learn a lot, don't you? Yes, you learn a huge amount. You learn history that I wasn't aware of. And I've studied this kind of period, so that was fascinating. And you realise how much certain women went through to get everybody what they have today, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that does make makes perfect sense. Um, I do love a good historical fiction novel that teaches you an awful lot. So I think it's the kind of book that gives you a lot of great dinner party facts. Yes. <laughs> Um, But what were the issues with it? I thought it was too dense. I've picked up and put this book down so many times. (laughs) And when it first came out, I was really excited about it because there was lots of chat on all kinds of social media stuff and everyone was saying this book is amazing. So I scampered out and bought it and thought, I'm really going to love this. And I read the first two chapters and thought oh no, that's not what I was expecting at all. And so then I put it down and then I picked it up and started it again and then I put it down again. Um, There's an awful lot in it. It's very dense. There's lots and lots and lots of information. You you have to put, there's lots of historical stuff, which is great, but that's almost there um, taking away from the story because you sort of have to explain what's going on and then it needs to happen. I, I get what you're saying. There's a sort of downside of the upside. The upside being it's hugely educational, yeah. but actually that can in, in some instances take away from story. Can you, you can see the research too much. Is that it? Rayhan, go on. No, do you want no, to finish no, your no, point? No, no, I, I carry, no. You I, haven't sure spoken you, yet. Yeah, no, go. okay. Well, look, <laughs> I, I thought, um, I didn't think that detracted from the book. What, what I struggled with with the book was the actual story itself. Um, in terms of there was a lot of jumping around between points of view initially when the book starts. In the first 30 pages, you're in people's heads. And I wasn't sure whose head I was in at certain times either. It wasn't very explicit. Um, I struggled with that. I struggled with the story itself and how some of it I felt was a little bit contrived and some of it I felt was a little bit like trying to push the representation card a bit too hard. And some of the sentences were like, I was like, hmm, that's just like pushing it too hard. However, what the story was very positive, I, I, what I would say is that it made me think about the historical period once more in that whilst uh, men were going out in a very machistic kind of 
I'm going to go and kill the enemy in the First World War, there was a very important parallel movement being led by women, which is the peace movement, which is running in parallel Mm. to this war. And I I kind of almost thought, well, what if uh, all of the governments at the time, the cabinets, half of those cabinets were made up of women, would they have gone to war? They probably wouldn't have gone to war because they would have probably figured out, I don't want to send my sons into war to be killed, right? So it got me thinking about that. It also got me thinking about um, the levers of power in a society because this was a movement to get the vote, right? But when you look at the electoral turnout in, in countries, in the UK, it's like about 60%. In America, it's 40%. Okay, people turn up to vote. Yet this thing happened, people sacrificed. So what does that tell you about the way, again, how power works in society? Uh, voting is only one thing. Economic power is, is, is really important as well. So it got me thinking about those kind of subjects. And I thought that was really important. But the story itself, I didn't enjoy it at all. Fair enough. Can I come back on a couple of Rahan's points? Yeah, of one, course you can. I think that I liked the way that she didn't have it quite as simplistic as women as peace lovers and men as kind of warmongers. There was an element, there were these kind of two warring factions of the suffragettes, which I thought was interesting. The ones that were very pacifistic and very pro-peace and the ones that had just had enough. You kind of got, you could imagine their meetings. It was like, right, we've been nice and quiet and good for 50 years. Enough now, we're going to start chaining ourselves to railings, damaging property. And so I liked the fact that there were those two elements. So it's not purely aren't women lovely and didn't they suffer. So I, But I do, I do get your point. I do think if there had been more women involved in important conversations, things might have gone differently. And then the other thing, I have heard a few people say that they feel that um, there is too much diversity in the book. But actually, I don't think there is. I think that is the author being the author because she talks, I, again, I, I was interested by the book, so I found out a bit more. And she talks about how her family were a Quaker family. And so a lot of these things that feel new to a reader are actually her portraying herself on paper. And it may feel like diversity because she is diverse in several areas, but actually it's not. It's her life just as it is, you know, in these other books. So it's her writing what Herself, she would and, yeah, like to see. In some ways. Obviously, she she didn't live <laughs> in 1914. <laughs> Did she not? <laughs> no. But the, the family kind of dynamics and the conversations between women, I get the impression that Sally Nichols' life has involved those kind of interactions and those kind of conversations. Again, and actually, the other thing is, when I when I showed the um, the David Roberts history book about the suffragettes to the children at school, none, nobody had ever heard of them. They didn't know anything about it. Um, and I, I think, in a way, to be able to introduce this generation to to this period of history, because actually, most children know about the suffragettes from watching Mary Poppins <laughs> and <laughs> votes for women, and it basically that's kind of how it is. <laughs> Um, and this, uh, I think this, I think I think it's an important book in that it's br- bringing a new lot of children into a, an understanding about what people went through. Only, I mean, only a hundred years ago. We're going to leave it there. We've got more to talk about. I just want to let everybody know that on the Carnegie website, there are these wonderful videos. We've been playing some clips from the interviews to illustrate certain points throughout the show today. But if you have, if you are a child listening to this, um, a young person who is an aspiring writer or you have one in your life, they do have at the end of most of the interviews, they have advice for aspiring writers. And we can't play all of them out on the show today. But if you're looking for resources, they can be super helpful for the budding writers in your life. And to 
remind you, the search for the UAE's best young poets and writers has begun. This is something that the Emirates Literature Foundation is involved with and puts together. The Talim Award for Poetry and the Story Writing Competitions are now open. And the theme for both competitions is the word tomorrow. The deadline for submissions is the 6th of October 2019. And if you want more information, you can go to elfdubai.org. And we've got some differing opinions about the book in terms of story and characters and all that sort of thing. But I think what we can all agree on is the period of history and the research that went into it is incredibly interesting. And here we have Sally Nichols talking about suffragettes and the generation in the middle that she's writing about in her book. I was also interested in how the generation before them, their mothers, were Victorian women um, living quite restricted Victorian women, female women lives. And their daughters are girls in the in the 1930s who were going off and, you know, having careers and being spies in the Second World War and and not, you know, living a life that's that's more restricted than the life I hope my readers will be leading, but still much more close to what we'd see as a modern woman. And then the suffragettes are these weird generation in between where if you read writing from the period, these girls are desperate to have jobs, they're desperate to have pockets. I mean, one of the poems I read was when researching the book is this, this woman having a rant about how, you know, pinafores don't have pockets, are, are quite frustrated by their Victorian parents. They are the ones who are enacting the change that gets us to this more modern generation. And I just thought that would be a really interesting thing to write about. So thoughts on that? Pockets. I pockets. know that that's, that's a big that, thing in my life. <laughs> particular thing that we are both very invested in. Um, I thought Pockets was um, kind of, the, she gave that bit of research to the character Nell. And I found the story of Nell's family really interesting because you it had never really occurred to me how much family suffered when the main male breadwinner was sent to war. So you saw Nell's family just went, they, they you know, they ate daily by what he bought in. And because of the disorganisation, there would be no money coming from him for a while. And you realised the family would actually starve. The family wouldn't be able to afford medicine to make sure that that the children were okay, you know, and this is how girls were empowered because they had to go to work. Nell had to go to work in order to pay for her brother's medicine. And so that was very interesting to me. And I liked the fact that you had Nell's voice talking about how history is usually told from the, the royals or the important figures or the leaders, the generals. And um, I think I've got the quote somewhere here about um, when they talk about how it will be taught afterwards, she goes, they won't teach about us at all, she said. History ain't folk like us. It's kings and queens and Mr Lloyd George and swells like that. And so it's quite interesting. And Nell's mother chips in and says, I hope they tell about the wives and the children starving to death. And so I like this book because it does try to bring in those other elements. Yeah. Anybody else mm. feel similarly? Had you ever read anything like this about, about this particular generation before? Um, I, f I, I feel like I have. But then again, um, nothing. I, I mean, I, I do. Th I think historical novels for children are just brilliant because they they bring in a whole new understanding of of uh, life and where they've come from and often when history is not taught in the same way at school anymore this is a, a great way to introduce different ideas and places and times um but i, I just i felt like it, it was just a bit self-conscious but I think book. I think that's, that's that an make, interesting way of describing it. I, although I also do find it really hard to be critical about anything because somebody has actually spent so much time working really hard and 
Um, I, I who am I to say saying saying anything well, we really about we it? We can't all like the same no. books, and authors know that, don't you, Rachel? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think as an author, it's even harder to criticise somebody else's work. But I, I generally, I, I don't see much to criticise. I think it's fascinating. I love the way that she looks at the the kind of. Also, the downsides, because you could just portray this as, yay, the suffragettes, everything they did was very powerful and glamorous mm. and didn't they do wonderful things. But I like the fact that she really made, when um, Emma, um, sorry, when Evelyn is arrested and goes, there are so many characters. <laughs> but yeah, when Evelyn is arrested and goes on hunger strike, she shows the kind of sordid nature of it and how hideous it is. Mm. And the fact that she gets ill afterwards, then gets infected. And so you think... There was a real physical downside to what these women did and they became very ill. And the same with, I thought it was really funny, the bit where um, May's mother, who is this very worthy Quaker pacifist, has all these values and so refuses to pay tax as a matter of principle because women haven't got the vote, but then ends up with a bailiff living in her living room and then all of the furniture gets taken. And I love there's a line where May, who is quite thoughtful and can be a little bit selfish at times, and talks about the fact that sacrificing everything for a cause is rather an exciting thing to do but having everything sacrificed for you by someone else was just awkward and frustrating and difficult (laughs) and I like that I like these different perspectives on things so very quickly do you think this one might win do you want it to um I would be a little bit disappointed if it did because I've got more other ones that are favorites but but having said that it is you know I can see the merits of it um it's just a bit too gritty I think (laughs) Okay. We know that you're a fan of it, Rachel. Rehan, not not so much. But we are moving on to one now that I know that you're a big fan of. Um, this is Skinful of Shadows by Frances Harding. It is um, by the author's own admission, not the easiest of books to describe because she seems to write books that are not particularly easy to describe. Um, but the main character is a girl called Makepeace and she has depending on how you look at it, a blessing or a curse. And that is that she has a sort of uh, spiritual hollow inside her that is a tempting refuge or sanctuary for various ghosts and beings. And they don't come to her in a pleasant way all the time. She suffers from nightmares. It's quite a terrifying thing. And she ends up, I'm not giving anything away um, by this, but she ends up in this house um, that looks like it could be a refuge but she quickly discovers is actually quite a dangerous place to be so I think hopefully that doesn't give too much away but first thoughts on this book I wasn't as keen on it as you so what? maybe I should start going first and then you can all tell me how wrong I am yes. I love <laughs> historical novels I particularly love um, books set in this kind of period, you know, the Children of the New Forest. I, I, the, I, I grew up reading books by someone called Cynthia Harnett, um, the Wool Pack and the Stars of Fortune, and it's set. They were set in in real times, and there was no magical realism or sort of off the wall fantasy stuff. And those are the books that I loved, and I find the magical realism of it just a little bit too. I pre it's brilliantly written is it magical realism though? Or, well there's definitely some it's a ghost sort of, story right it's, it's yeah, definitely a ghost story it, i think it probably is i mean there, there's yeah. i mean it's set in a real time but then there's this whole other load of magical stuff that <laughs> that 
I, I really appreciate it's so well written. I mean, she writes absolutely you beautifully. You appreciate it. It's it just, just not. Didn't do anything also, the rules of that are very clear, though, aren't they? So sometimes this kind of when you have that kind of element, it can be a bit haphazard. Whereas you you can't say that the rules of the world aren't clear. It's it's very yeah. easy to understand. Even though it sounds when you were describing it, I was thinking this does sound absolutely mad. But when you're in the book, it's it's completely understandable how it's happening. There's justification for why it might happen. And that is because Frances Harding, and, and I think even if you weren't totally on board with the story, you can agree that as a writer, mm. Frances Harding does a phenomenal job. And I think one of the things that you mentioned before we came on the show, Rachel, was that she's a good example of something that you don't often see in children's fiction. Yeah, I was saying that when you have adult fiction, it's a, there's a clear split, split into kind of popular fiction and, and literary fiction. Whereas children Children's fiction is just this great big amorphous group. And so it's really hard. That's why I'm struggling to judge these books against each other. And Frances Hardinger, and there are other authors, Catherine Rundell, Lucy Strange, mm. write these books that are so poetically beautiful and literary. And they're in almost a different group than some of the others. So it's really hard to compare. Because if you look at her skill in writing, I mean, I would, um, maybe people would disagree, but I would argue that as a writer, she is more skilled than the others. I would say, mm. and the the kind of depth and the the things that she studies are more complex than most adult books I read, and so for that reason, she would be one of my favourites just because I look at what she's written. And as an author, sometimes you read books and you you admire them, and sometimes you read books and you think I will never be that good. <laughs> and I read this book and I think I could never write this well. Rayhan, I know that you're a fan of this. Um, why do you like it so much? I liked it on all fronts. So I like the character Makepeace because you are introduced to her. She seems very vulnerable at the beginning. And then she develops into this kind of powerful force that um, really brings this, brings some terrible people down, really, you know, uh, who, who she's involved with. And I again, I don't want to give away what happens. Um, I like the settings. Uh, so the way uh, the descriptions were made of the period of uh, the ancestral home that she ends up in. Um, and I also like the way that the plot has been woven through and how friction and conflict is created and put into the plot at, at different stages just when oh there's a plot twist now or oh, something else has happened oh my god oh my god oh my god so you're kind of like you're pay, uh, turning the page really fast but I think that the second thing other than the, the technical element of the story the second thing I thought was really uh, I, I enjoyed was the whole historical context because it's the 1640s um, and there's a, obviously a battle going on between king uh, and parliament, between Catholicism and you know more Protestant and, and, and Purit puritanical kind of beliefs. Now, if you go back a century, of course, it was it was different because it was England was a Protestant nation, and the Catholics were you know uh, were marginalised. And then after Elizabeth I dies and James takes over, England goes back to being Catholic again. So if you think about ordinary people living at the time, they were being told to believe one thing. Now, I don't believe that. Now, I believe this thing. Uh, and obviously, James was a real uh, supporter of the witch hunt. And obviously, Shakespeare writes Macbeth and all these kind of influences of the period. So this is coming straight after that. So you've got now a new king who is on the side of the Catholics. And what it showed, to me, what it showed me was that, um, and again, uh, England was an insignificant nation at this time. And it was partly insignificant because there was so much infighting going on. And if you bring that forward to the modern period now... If you look at the whole kind of Brexit discussion, again, England year by year or UK year by year is becoming more insignificant because there's more and more political infighting going on. And if you spend all your energy on 
on things like that and not dealing with the structural issues in your society, whether it's education or feeding homeless people or poverty, then you're going to go backwards, right? So I thought it was a very contemporary message in the book. So it's a great story, technically, and it was a very contemporary message for me. Yeah, I hadn't seen that at all. I think now, I, I mean, now I want to start again. <laughs> we, we've had a, a text message come in. Um, I think a lot of classic children's books are this way, where the books tackle, excuse me, sorry, uh, tackle themes better than adult books do. And that's quite impressive. Uh, the title of the book is Skimful of Shadows by Francis Harding. That's the book that we're talking about and at the moment. Um, so we have been talking a lot about um, the political background of this book because it's set during the English Civil War. We found it very interesting as readers. But I wondered why Francis Harding found it interesting to write about um, from an author perspective. Here she is talking about that. This is a war where you had brother killing brother on the battlefield because they were on different sides. But I was also really interested in the Civil War from the point of view of people who weren't on the battlefields. All the poor people who were just trying to survive as this country was falling apart and soldiers were turning up and stealing all, all the food that they'd stored away for winter and things like that and, and nobody knowing who to trust and spies running around all over the country carrying gold and information to and fro. So I wanted to, I wanted to look at this weird and exciting and very dangerous time off the battlefield. Frances Harding there about why she decided to write about the English Civil War. And I know that we can't play out all the clips on air, although we would like to because the entire interview is, is wonderful. So if you go to the um, the website for the Carnegie and the Greenaway Awards, they have all these video interviews with the authors and I do recommend you check those out. But the inspiration and one of the key characters in the book is this ghost bear could you talk a little bit about the ghost bear, Rehan? Yeah, sure. So this is a um, a a ghost entity, whatever, which uh, make peace uh, befriends accidentally at the beginning of the novel, and it has this kind of earthly elemental power to it. It can't speak to her, but she and it can feel. And because they both come from similar kind of backgrounds, neglected by themselves their bond is a lot stronger than perhaps the other ghosts that she encounters. And in fact, this the, the bear actually saves her the first time some of the dastardly family are trying to, you know, um, infil infiltrate her with some other ghosts. So, yeah, it's... Uh, and, and Rachel, you were saying this actually started, this bear element was what actually kick-started the inspiration for the whole book. Yes, apparently she wanted to write the story of a ghost bear. And that's just such a fascinating beginning for the huge complexity of what followed. Because of the way bears were because, treated? Yes, because the way bears were treated, she talked about the fact that people would throw hot coals at their feet to make them dance, and often really kind of tiny baby bears and the way they were kind of beaten into submission. And she said that she loved the idea of one of them being able to fight back and perhaps perhaps using kind of human knowledge in order to be able to do so. It's completely random. And I think any, any other writer may perhaps struggle to get this across but so it, beautifully, but she manages it. It works perfectly. And it also means because she's the beginning of the, the book, you can see that within the society as it exists, she is almost an irrelevant character. She would have no power. Whereas you see that as she gets certain additions into this kind of chamber within her where she can take on other souls, you can see that the bear comes first and it gives her this kind of aggression that she needs and the ability to 
bite off the others. And then slowly, bit by bit, she takes on other characters, which means that she can be the one that makes the change that needs to happen. The bear is an interesting component or character in the story. Um, There are quite a few. One of them is Helen as well. So Frances really enjoyed writing uh, the character of Makepeace herself, but she also enjoyed writing Helen. Um, This is why. I quite enjoyed writing about a character called Helen, though, as well. She's actually based on a real female spy from the Civil War, a lady called Jane Horwood, who was really swashbuckling and did a lot of gold smuggling and spying, and in fact was, at one point, part of an attempt to try and rescue the king from captivity. The attempt didn't work, but that wasn't her fault. And in fact, people said later that if everybody else had done their job as well as she did hers, then it probably would have worked. Frances Harding there talking about the inspiration for one of the characters in her book called Helen. Were there any others that really stood out for you? I thought the complexity of her relationship with James was so strong. So who is James? James is basically her brother, so well, half-brother. She is born and she lives with her mother in a kind of very poor environment with her family. And then when her mother dies, she then goes to this house, this mysterious, very aristocratic house, not really understanding the connection, but it turns out that one of them was her father. And um, while she's there, she meets another boy who was fathered in the same way. And so they have this connection, but they're not really wanted by the family because they're not legitimate. And so they have this relationship where they're both trying to escape. But her brother is pulled into this idea of nobility and he he wants the glamour that's involved in it. And then there's this in the end, he betrays her. And there's this fantastic bit of writing. If it's all right, if I read this out. Absolutely. And um, it goes, um, I trust you. She had often told him. But was that true? No, she realised with a feeling like grief. All those years, even while she plotted with James, in her heart of hearts she'd been waiting for him to betray her. When at last she had looked into his eyes and seen a host of dead enemies staring back, her mind had filled with a storm. But there had been an eye to that storm, a quiet core where a calm, relieved voice was saying, there it is at last, no more waiting for the sword to fall. And I think that's beautifully written and the, the relationship is beautifully drawn out. What I really enjoyed was her relationship with the animals because it's, it's the bear inside her, but then you've got the dogs and you've got various other animals she encounters. Now, the animals aren't mired in political skullduggery. They're, they're pure, innocent kind of creatures. And throughout, you know, the way she uh, conducts herself with the creatures, with these animals, looks after them, and, you know, they come and help her as well at the end, at, you know, one of the, in, yes. in the climax at the end of the book. I thought that was really nice as well. And there's a bit where she recognises that if you take on the characteristics of animals, life will be easier for you. And so she talks about being patient and in the way that animals put up with the pain in order to kind of just have an easier life. She talks about how she would let them think they tamed her, but actually underneath she's waiting for her moment to escape or to fight back. So well done. We've got only a couple of minutes left to talk about this book. So I just wondered, Rayhan, if there was anything lingering that the the book left you with any themes or messages that you think that you got from it that you took away from it or if you just thought it was a great story it's a great story i think the author herself says that the key message in the book is think for yourself and i think today in uh, the con- uh, contemporary context with people being kind of uh told to think certain things um i think it's very important people do think very clearly you've just reminded across. me that she did in fact say that here she is herself francis harding I tend to explore themes in my books rather than giving people messages. But if there is a message in all my books, it might well be something along the lines of think for yourself, ask questions, 
and think for yourself. Don't let anyone tell you what to do or think, and that includes me. One of the things I like about writing YA is I think actually YA readers are a lot better about asking questions, challenging what they're told, and feeling that they've actually got a bit of a responsibility to live their life their own way and think about their future as something that belongs to them. I think sometimes adults forget to ask quite so many questions and I think that's a a talent we should try to keep really, to be honest. Frances Harding, uh, when she was asked if there are any messages in her book or books. So we're going to move on from A Skinful of Shadows. I think um, most of us enjoyed that one. Mary Rose, not so much. Yeah, but actually I appreciate everything everything about it and it is it, it, if it won, I would be delighted because it is so You don't have so to feel well bad. You're allowed to have favourites. <laughs> it's just that it's, uh, the only bit I don't like about it is that it not don't like, that it doesn't kind of speak to me is that fantasy bit that Which is I bit can't I love. I, yeah, and I think it's you either do or you don't and yeah. you, you can't help that. But, you know, that's who you are as a reader. Don't feel bad about it. Okay, thanks. So <laughs> we're going to move on now to The House with Chicken Legs. And very quickly, here's Sophie Anderson telling us what it's all about. The House with Chicken Legs is basically the story of um, a 12-year-old girl called Marinka who is trying to escape a lonely destiny as the guardian of the gate between this world and the next because she lives in a house with chicken legs and her grandmother is um, Baba Yaga and um, in my book Baba Yaga's role is to guide the dead from this world to the next and all her life Marinka has been told that she is to follow in her grandmother's footsteps and uh, she really doesn't want to, she just wants a normal life in a normal house and more than anything she wants to have some living friends. So this book is um, her journey to try to assert her independence and get the kind of life that she wants. So we actually reviewed The House with Chicken Legs with a couple of wonderful young reviewers last year in September, Eleftheria and Shivani. They were brilliant. They had, um, they really enjoyed the book. Did you? Yes. Yes. I, I mean, which is bizarre, given what I've just said. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but I... Um, you make no sense. <laughs> No, I know. I'm often told that by everybody. Um, uh, I I actually really like this because I think the message it, it works very well as an allegory for all sorts of things. And um, there was uh, I discovered a word I'd never heard: psychopomp. Which psychopomps are guides to the dead, and they have them in every culture. So Baba Yaga, Anubis, the Grim Reaper. I think it's such a great word. Um, and I just, I liked... I so liked that's the what I'd... Skinful of Shadows needed. It needed a word that you'd never heard before. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, maybe, I was, maybe it's just because I'm too simple. I don't know. I, I just liked, I liked, the, I liked the, the conversations that you have about um, moving from life to death and what it means to be alive and what it means to be dead and that lovely thing of guiding you know these are universal themes and I, I think because it's it's just it's been told in such a, a lovely way it and has. it makes you think a lot 
um, and just introduces you to some quite deep stuff, deep philosophical stuff, but in a in a really lovely way. Deep philosophical stuff and also quite traditionally dark stuff. So the Baba Yaga myth that this is um, kind of riffing off isn't 100% delightful and lovely traditionally in Slavic mm. folklore and fairy tales. Um, she's, she's sort of a wise woman, but she can be a bit witchy in some of the and evil and witchy in some of the earlier folk tales, but she's taken it and given it a completely new twist. And for a children's book about something quite, um, quite you know, otherwise creepy, you know, a transition from this life to the next and guiding people there, it's amazing how comforting a mm. read the book actually is. There's also an apps. It has all of this depth and all of this kind of deep, meaningful stuff, but it has a glorious bonkersness about it, it which does. I think is missing a little bit in some of the others, mm. which is why I welcome this one. I was sad to see there's no kind of comedy in this year's list. And I think that sometimes um, books that get onto these lists can be very worthy and can be very meaningful, but there's a lot to be said for just sheer madness. Which is why we loved Wed Wabbit last year yes, so much. Yes, And this mm. is just brilliant. The house with chicken legs is just glorious. It made me think, you know, Howl's Moving Castle exactly. and all those images. And there was such a kind of a visual element and also it's worth saying that some of these books are beautifully illustrated and we haven't really mentioned the illustrator this one it's um elisa paganelli's illustrations and then there's beautiful bits of the, the stars and the the way you know through the gate and what you see on the other side and it's just it's a lovely book i think that's really great that you mentioned howl's moving castle because you, you've just reminded me of what it does remind me of and if you like Howl's Moving Castle and that sort of thing you will love this book you'll love The House with Chicken Legs by Sophie Anderson Um, before we wrap up I want to just talk to you about some of the linking themes and what you think overall about the books that have been nominated this year Uh, overall I actually liked this group of books more than last year's group of books as you can probably tell by the fact I find it really hard to say anything negative about any of them this year whereas I didn't have the same problem last year and I think there are some examples of absolutely spectacular writing in particular I'd say um, Skinful of Shadows is so just impeccably written and actually two of the verse novels have twists of phrase that literally I would scribble down and they've played in my mind the long way down Jason Reynolds and the poet X by Elizabeth (laughs) Mary Rose thoughts on this year's list yes I um I really liked it I I I loved I loved all of the books I I actually loved them all last year it felt this time that there had been much more thought about where they had what sort of themes they were talking about so there's there's quite a strong emphasis on minority fictional books that will appeal to people that come from different places so there's a wide range you know, we've go from the philippines to um black uh, boys from the hood in harlem um and so in that respect i felt it was a little perhaps a little bit of a more self-consciously chosen list Having said that, there are some themes that run through all of them, like um, death. Quite a lot of the books have got a dead parent or sister or brother. Yeah, and the grieving cho- Yeah, and children dealing with change in their lives and the, the grief from that. And also the importance of memory and growing up and coming. That lovely clip from Frances Harding about, about children questioning about young YA books 
questioning and and young people questioning all the time why am i doing this and lots of these books have got children who are going on a on a journey of discovery and yeah. finding themselves and also destiny this like fighting exactly. against your destiny particularly from a female perspective i thought was i don't know if it was deliberate at all but it's an interesting theme that runs through quite a few yeah. that you have expectations placed on you because of your gender and many of the characters were kind of battling against those which was interesting yeah, Rayhan. Yeah, I, mean, I haven't read them all, but it seems that the kind of the, one of the questions in the Zeitgeist today is you ask a lot of people like, what are they struggling with? And it's like, what's my purpose in life? Mm-hmm. And it seems that a lot of these books mm-hmm. are trying to answer that question: yeah. what is your purpose as well? So, I mean, I haven't read them all, but that seems yes, like yeah, it yeah, yeah, coming yeah. and up. the pressures on people because actually, Long Way Down is hugely about more than any of the others because I keep talking about the female perspective, but actually, on men as well, on boys, this expectation of you to behave in a certain way to get revenge, you know, these three rules that you have to follow. And yeah, I think it's it's very interesting that that that's something that you would take out as a YA reader. A lot of them are very much about, you know, who are you going to grow up to be? Who do you envisage yourself, you know, becoming? Um, and it's a very open question. It's one that I remember struggling with. I think a lot of us remember struggling with when we were that age or the age that we would be reading these books. Um, and, and I was taken back to that place when I was reading a lot of them as well, particularly the ones in verse, particularly the one like The Poet X, um, Long Way Down. I was taken back to that period of time. And it's interesting that those the Greenaway picture books have similar themes going yes. through them as well, actually, that lots of them are about the absence of something or missing of somebody who's died or um, some catastrophic event happening and then coming to terms with it. So uh, it's 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 funny. I wonder whether it is because it's just this time that we're in, in and particularly in the UK lives. with Brexit and everyone not quite knowing where they're going, that this is an example of all of that confusion and people finding um, themselves. I don't know if you felt the same, Mary Rose. As a sort of someone who goes in and does school visits and talks a lot to kids, I found myself much more enthusiastic about teaching these or wanting to yes. talk to kids about these. Yeah. We're going to have to leave it there. I think we, you, you both like the book so much, I'm not going to put you on the spot again and ask you which one you think will win. Um, we will find out on Tuesday at three o'clock our time, won't yes. we? Okay. There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com.